Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. Father, we thank you for for being a steady rock. Father, we thank you for being with us all the time. Father, we thank you for caring intimately about every detail of our lives. Father, we thank you for giving us life. We thank you for bringing us into existence. We thank you for putting us in a country that you have blessed so greatly. Father, that we, we, we live day to day without fear of, of, of persecution because we're a Christian. Father, you have been so good to us. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, we, we pray that during this hour, that as we study your word, that we would understand it correctly that we would apply it to our lives, that it would change us, that we would live differently because of it, that we could take your word and hold it and cherish it and count on it. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would help us to understand it and that you would, you would soften our hearts to be receptive to it. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been journeying through the, uh, the Bible, looking at the story of the kingdom of God. And so as we've been going through the scriptures, we've been seeing how in the beginning, God is king over all the universe. He is ultimately the true king. That everything that he created is his kingdom. But he chose to do something very special. In the beginning, when he created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden... He chose to give a creature made in His image, humans, us, a creature made in His image, He chose to give them rule over the whole earth. He told them to to be fruitful and multiply and spread out across the whole earth and to rule it. And so all of creation is His kingdom. And so He rules over all of creation But he created this small, small, small space in his kingdom. And he made us in his image and he told us and gave us the right to rule over it. But we have an enemy. His name is Satan. And Satan's desire is to rule over this kingdom as well. And ultimately we look throughout the scriptures, we started to see how how he really is ruling over this kingdom. Jesus and, and the New Testament refers to him as the ruler of this world because he has been fighting hard to rule this world and he has been getting us to fight against God instead of fighting against him. And he's been gaining ground. But that's not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus gave us the authority to go out and to reclaim this world for God's glory. And so we're starting to look at this picture throughout the the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we, we got to Abraham and we saw how God had chose Abraham as the father of the nation of Israel on earth. His, his earthly visual representation of his kingdom on earth. And he chose Abraham because he was a man full of faith. And God wanted to teach us that we enter into the kingdom of God, not through works, but through our faith. And so then we saw Isaac. Um, uh, Let me put up a picture for you. 
this is a picture I showed before. This is uh, the book of Genesis broken down into its five main sections. The first section, Genesis 1 through 11, is about creation and about the beginning. Then Abraham gets introduced in chapter 12. And then we have a large portion on Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. Um, but see, Abraham is the father of the faith. And then we see Isaac and, and Isaac ends up repeating the same things um, that Abraham did. And then we see Jacob. Jacob again repeats the same things. And God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him and make him into a great nation. He made that same promise again to Isaac. And then he made that same promise again to Jacob. God, God kept reiterating that same promise. And so uh, we saw that he was promising this great nation to each of them. But what we didn't see is we didn't see them actually God fulfilling that promise. We didn't see them actually getting that great nation. As a matter of fact, Abraham and Sarah were very, very old and childless when God made the promise to turn them into a great nation. And how can you become a great nation without children? Um, it looked like Abraham and, and Sarah were just, their bloodline was going to stop at them. But God took what was impossible. Abraham believed it by faith, and he did the impossible. And so Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old when they had Isaac. Again, the same story with Isaac. God had promised Isaac that he would make him into a great nation. But Isaac and Rebekah, again, were childless. Matter of fact, Isaac was 60 years old when he finally had his first child, twins, Jacob and Esau. And so again, God had made a promise, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, to a couple who was childless and well beyond the years of having children. But they believed by faith, and God kept miraculously fulfilling the promise that he, he said he was going to give them. But again, no land. Matter of fact, Abraham, when Sarah died, Abraham didn't have enough land to, to even bury Sarah. He had, to, he had to purchase land to bury Sarah. And so there was no land yet that we see at all. And then the promise that he was making was to people who were not able to have children. But every time he would fulfill those promises, he, he would turn the impossible and he would make it possible. Again, we go on to Jacob. Jacob uh, married Rachel. He got tricked into marrying his her older sister Leah first. Uh, but Rachel couldn't have children. And at one point, Leah couldn't have children. And so he ended up marrying their servants. And so Jacob ended up with four wives. And then he ended up with 12 children. But again, we see this this problem where they couldn't have children, but yet God was promising them to turn them into a great nation. And so all along the way, we see God making this promise that seems impossible, that he can, ends up turning around and making it possible. But still, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, still, we don't see this inheritance of this land. How, how are they going to become a great nation? How are they going to... Um, take over all this land that God had promised Abraham to give him. 
And so then that brings us to the last person that we see in Genesis, and that's Joseph. And Joseph actually gets the largest portion of Scripture devoted to him. So when God promised Abraham to turn him into a great nation, Abraham was very familiar with nations all around him. And all these nations had kings. And so Abraham understood this concept that if you were going to be a great nation or a great kingdom, that he was promising you land and kingship. And so there would be a king as his descendant and there would be land. Here was the promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there was the promise. Abraham understood There would be a king, there would be a kingdom, there would be a great nation. But with no land, how is that going to happen? So, we get to Joseph. And what we see about Joseph is, Joseph always seems to do everything right. Joseph seems to always make the right choices. Joseph, uh, we don't see him... uh, We don't see him getting involved in any scandals. We don't see him cheating anybody. We don't see him betraying anybody. He just always seems to be doing what's right. And it's an important, uh, I want to kind of make a, a point that that the God doesn't shy away from telling us people's faults in the scriptures. And so when you see all these different characters throughout the scriptures, you always see their faults. You always see um, their what their good qualities are, but you always see their bad qualities. And the more Scripture is devoted to a person, the more faults you typically seem to see. But there are some exceptions, and Joseph is one of those exceptions. But he starts off, he's always doing everything right, and then he's sold into slavery. And so when he's sold into slavery, he is separated from the family of promise. And this is something that that we don't read directly in the scripture, but it's something that is clearly understood, is that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 12 sons. They are all raised being told about the family promise, that their God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has made this great promise that they're going to make them into a great nation and that they are going to give them all the land of Canaan. And so... All the nations are going to be blessed through them. And so this is a promise that they are raised with, that they think about, that they understand, that they dream about one day. And here is Joseph, does everything right, and then he is sold into slavery, and he is separated from that promise. He's separated from that family of promise. And so it wasn't just that, you know, the one part that we probably often don't think about is the thoughts when he's he's been separated is in his mind 
what we would naturally think is he's been separated from God's blessing. Is that God had promised to make this family into a great nation. That he had made this family a promise. That he had chosen this family. That he was going to turn them into a great nation. He was going to bless them. And then Joseph gets separated from that family. And so it would seem that he would also be separated from his God. But what we see is that even through all these difficult circumstances, he never abandons his relationship with God. He never abandons his faithfulness to God. He never abandons his worship to God. He remains faithful to worship the God who promised to bless his family who he was no longer a part of and as far as he was concerned would never see again. But Joseph remained faithful to that God anyways. And so after he remains faithful to God, after being sold into slavery, what does he get in return from God? He gets thrown in prison. Not exactly from God, but God's sovereignty works it all out. So he goes from slavery to a comfortable, I would say comfortable, the way it was written, it appears he had a comfortable position as a manager over an entire household, a very wealthy estate. He was the head manager. He had worked his way up. And then he gets sold into, slu- into, into he gets thrown into prison. And now he's locked up in a dungeon in the bottom of a prison. At this point, you would think Joseph would finally abandon God. After always doing the right thing, after always following and obeying God faithfully, He went from being separated from his family, sold into slavery, and now thrown into prison. But he doesn't. He remains faithful to God, even while in prison. Even while things are going from from bad to worse, he remains faithful to God. And so then, after he's thrown into prison, miraculously, He gets released from prison and he is made second in command to Pharaoh of Egypt. And so now, instead of just being in charge of this wealthy estate, now he is in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. The only person above him is Pharaoh. After Pharaoh, it's Joseph. And Joseph runs the whole show. And the way that the the story is written... In Genesis, the way that we're told what happened, it's all written to make you to make you visualize and view Joseph as Pharaoh goes off and does whatever he wants to do and Joseph runs the whole country. I mean that's that's the impression that you get. You're reading the story and you're reading and what you see is Joseph in command of the country, Joseph in charge, Joseph having all all this power and all this freedom. And so what we see, what we're, the picture that we're painted by God in the scriptures is we see Joseph as king. And we see him as king of this great and large and powerful nation. And so what God promises every way, every, every, at every time across the, the spectrum Every promise that he made seemed impossible when he made the promise. And miraculously, every time, 
he came through on his promises. And so Joseph now is, he's not the king, but he is pretty much, he's in the position of king over probably the most powerful nation at the time. And so God takes the impossible and he makes it possible. And so the question is, what is God trying to show us from this? Well, the whole point about God not telling us hardly any of Joseph's flaws, that he paints this picture of Joseph as this very faithful and very upstanding, very upright man of God throughout the entire, the, the entire narrative. What we see is we see a couple things. One, we see Abraham as the father. We see that he is the father of the nation. Abraham shows us, or God shows us through Abraham, this is how you enter the kingdom. You enter the kingdom by faith. That's what he taught us with Abraham. He, we should have the faith of Abraham. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God. But with Joseph, he shows us after we enter the kingdom through faith, he shows us through the life of Joseph, this is how I want you to live in the kingdom. I want you to be faithful. I want you to trust me. I want you to hold on to me. I don't want you to abandon me. I want you to believe and know that I can fulfill all the promises that I've made to you and that I want you to live as I would live. I want you to rule as I would rule. I want you to, to, to be holy for I am holy. And so he shows us through, with Abraham how to enter the kingdom and he shows us through Joseph how to live in the kingdom. And so... We're told, uh, you know, when we look at Joseph's life, we have to realize that, that he went through a lot of hardships in his life. And so we should be encouraged by his life. We should be encouraged by what he went through and how he responded in those difficult times in his life. We should be encouraged as we go through this difficult life that we are in. Um, God told us that this life is going to be difficult and we must endure and hold on to our faith in God throughout this life. We can't abandon God because things don't go the way we want them to or because things go tragically wrong. No matter how bad or how difficult life gets, we cannot abandon our faith in God. We must hold on to Him. And we can be encouraged by looking back at the lives of those who have gone before us throughout the Scriptures and to see how they did not abandon God even though life got really difficult because they knew there was a promise. And that promise was that God has an eternal future waiting for us. An eternal future in which we will have no more difficulties. We'll have no more hardships. But one, one that only those who place their faith in Him will, will experience. Only those who give their life to Christ, only those who give their life to God and faithfully follow Him and worship Him, as opposed to worshiping other gods or just rejecting Him and abandoning Him, only those who place their faith in Him will experience that eternal life of bliss and perfection in that kingdom with Him. And he, he tells us, and uh, Paul told the early ch- the church in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 22. It says, After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch 
strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And so I just want to encourage you, church. I, I want, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to encourage you to continue in the faith. Do not give up on your walk with God. Do not give up on your relationship with God because things get difficult or hard in this life. We're going to face very difficult hardships in our lives. And it's going to be different for every person. But the scripture makes it clear that it is necessary that we have to go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through this life of hardship in order to enter the kingdom of God. And so the lives of people like Joseph can give us the endurance that we need to get through these types of hardships. God said in Romans 15:4, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement for this, from the Scriptures. So the entire story of Joseph was written by God specifically in a way in order to teach us, to instruct us, and to give us hope through endurance and through encouragement from the Scriptures. And so I would, I would, I would beg and plead with you to, to study uh, Genesis is 37 through 50. is the largest section of Genesis, but it's the story of Joseph. To read that story, read it multiple times, get familiar with it, and get that story of Joseph's life and what he went through and how he responded, and get that in your heart and in your mind, that you can recall those things, you can recall what God has taught you through his life, to be able to endure hardships and get through this life, knowing that God is sovereign and that God is in control, and no matter how much evil is done against us, no matter how much people try to betray us, no matter how much people try to work against us, that God is in control and he can bring about whatever he wants. And so it was through Joseph's brothers betraying him, selling him, lying to their father, saying that he was killed. It was through that betrayal, it was through that sin that they committed against him that ended up putting him in the place where he was in essence the king over the most powerful nation in the world. And so what we see is that Joseph then at the end of the story reconciles with his brothers and and his father and gives them land to live in in this country. And so this promise that God had been making saying that I'm going to turn you into a great nation and I'm going to make you give you all this land and make you a powerful nation and a powerful kingdom It's amazing and should give us courage to see how he, and I don't know the exact time frame, but a very, very, very short time frame, can take a family who doesn't have much of anything and immediately give them reign and rule over the most powerful nation on earth at the time. It is is mind-blowing. It is amazing how God can accomplish anything He wants to accomplish. 
And it's that encouragement that we must hold on to, to know that, you know, Joseph went through a lot of difficulties to end up getting to that promise that God had made him, or at least a, a, in every situation, Abraham's life, Isaac's life, uh, Jacob's life, Joseph's life, where God had made a promise and they had to step out in faith and believe that promise and then God came through with a way to show him, show them beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will fulfill that promise. In Abraham's life, it was, he was 100, Sarah was 90. He believed that God would make him into a great nation, but he had no idea how it would be possible. And then God gives them a child at 190 years old. And that was enough for Abraham to believe, okay, well, we don't have the land yet that God promised, but I didn't have the child either. And if he can give me a child at a hundred years old, he can give us the land and I believe him and I trust him. And so it's those type of things, those little things here and there that God is showing, I will fulfill all my promises that I gave you. Nothing can stop me. And so even though the land of Egypt wasn't theirs, it wasn't Joseph's and, and Israel's families, it, it wasn't theirs, it was he had put them over a nation and gave them plenty of land in that nation. It was a way of showing them, I can make you into a great nation in a day if I want to. I can do whatever I want to do. But he had told Abraham, he had said, look, you're going to be oppressed for 400 years and then I will give you the nation. Then I will give you the land. And so they had plenty to go on to be confident that God would fulfill what he had promised. And so he tells us about that kingdom because we, as, as Christians in the New, New Testament era, post-Christ, we who place our faith in Christ, we still have that same promise of that same kingdom. God has made a promise that we will inherit that same kingdom. And he has told us about that kingdom. And it's not some figurative kingdom. It is a literal kingdom, a literal kingdom. And he told us all about it. Let's, let's read about it. Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. That's it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And let's read about that city. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. And if you don't remember how long that is, 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. So he measured it with the rod at 1,400 miles. Its length, width, and height are equal. This, this holy city that God built, he's the, great, the greatest architect ever, This holy city that God built is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, which is about 200 feet, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. I just want to say, I would love to see those oysters. But God can make anything He wants with whatever He wants. Each gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. 
People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is the city that we have been promised, the kingdom that we have been promised to become members of, that we will inherit, that we will go and live in. And those who have placed their faith in God and Christ before us, who have died before us, they have gone to be in that city right now. But in order to enter that city, God has taught us that you must enter it through faith. And apart from faith, you will not enter that city. And so God tells us clearly what it means to be born again. Because you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, 1 through 21 says, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so I just want to reiterate that. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, meaning I'm, this is, you can take this to the bank as truth, which anything Jesus said was truth. But Jesus emphatically said, Truly I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it is so important that we understand what it means to be born again and that we make sure that we are born again before we leave this earth because it is the the only way we will inherit salvation. It's the only way we will enter God's kingdom when we die. He said, how can, any, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever born is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And that is the key, that you must believe in Him. You must place your faith in Him as the Son of God, as the only way of salvation, as the only offer of forgiveness. Because what he said right before that was, so just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, which was Him being lifted up on the cross, Him being crucified, that sacrifice for our sins, that we must believe that He 
is the sacrifice for our sins. We must believe that He is the only way of salvation, that He is the Son of God, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, there's that sacrifice, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. But everyone who does evil, for everyone who does evil, hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And so Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a religious leader at the time. And Jesus was telling him, unless you believe in me, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You, as a Jewish religious leader of the people... You will not inherit God's kingdom unless you believe in me, unless you place your faith in me. And then he shows the big stumbling block as to why many people will not believe in him and why others will. And he explains it right here. He says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. And so what Jesus is saying is that our sins, the sins that we are caught up in, the sins that we're committing, that we like, that we enjoy, that we don't want to give up. He said those sins cause people to not come to God. Those sins cause people to not come to me, to not come to me and, and place their faith in me and surrender to me as their king, as their Lord. It's because they hold on to their sins and they don't want to give them up for God. And he says they, their deeds, the things that they do that are evil, which we classify as all sin, their sins cause them to avoid me. It causes them to not want to come to me. And that's the big stumbling block for all of us is that we don't want to change. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want to give up the sins that we enjoy that he says is wrong, but we don't either we know is wrong, but we still want to do them anyways, or the things that we want to do that we don't think is wrong, but he has said they're wrong. And so it's our sins that cause us to stumble. And that's what we must remember. If I'm talking to you right now, if you're listening, if you're a Christian, this is something you've already experienced in your own life that you knew you had sinned, that you knew you, had, you were living in sin, and that God had paid the penalty for your sin and offered an extended forgiveness to you, and you decided you wanted God and were willing to turn from sin, that you wanted God more than you were willing to hold on to that sin. And so you let go of that sin and you grabbed on to God. And you've already experienced that. But if people you're talking to have not done that, if they have not given their life to God, if they have not chosen to follow Him, then you must remember that that's the big stumbling block. That's the big thing that's holding them back. That they don't want to let go of what 
they enjoy, what they think they like, the, the things that they do that are sin, that God, they know God has said, you must stop. You must not do this anymore. And we must be, um, we must be patient with them. We must be loving with them. And we must be understanding because we were there. We went through the same situation. That was what, how we lived and we held on to our sin and we enjoyed our sin, but sin is temporary and it always comes back to bite you in the end. No matter what sin is enjoyable, which most sins are, that's why people do them. No matter what enjoyment someone gets from a sin, it's always temporary and it always leaves you in worse shape than before you committed it. It always leaves you more empty or it causes more devastation or it causes more um, fra- fraction or, or it, it, it always wreaks havoc. It never gives you what it promises, which is enjoyment or a better life or more fulfillment. It never gives you those things that it promises to give you. It always comes back and leaves you worse off. But we must understand and be patient and be understanding with people who don't understand why they should give up the things that they enjoy, why they should step away from these things that God says is wrong if they don't think it's wrong, and why He is worth them turning from sin and surrendering their life to Him. And so we must help them see and help teach them and help them understand clearly why He's worth it. Because He is worth it. God is the one who gave us life. He's the one who gave us existence. He's the one who who put us here. God is the one who brought everything into existence. God is the one who has loved us more than anyone has ever loved us. And God is the one who wants to give us good things. God is the one who wants to protect us. God is the one who wants to see our life great and perfect and wonderful. And He doesn't want us to commit sins that destroy us and destroy each other and tear us apart and break our relationship with Him. He wants us to be adopted as His children. He wants us to, be, to love Him as our Father. He wants us to be His family forever in a perfect world, in a perfect kingdom. And He is extending that invitation. He has gone through all the steps to make that available to us. He has left His throne. He has come to earth to die for us. He loves us. And He only wants good for us. And so I ask you, do you know that you are born again? Do you know for sure that you have stepped into that relationship with God who loves you so very much? And if not, there is no reason that you can't make that decision right now to turn from sin and turn to God, to give your life to Him and follow Him for the rest of your life. And He will come to live within you now. He will walk with you through this life now. He will help you through the hardships that you are going to have to walk through now. He is there for you. He loves you. And He wants you to spend eternity with Him in a perfect and amazing kingdom. I pray that if you have not made that decision, that you will make that decision right now. And that nothing will hold you back and nothing will stop you. And that you will realize that there is no sin in this world. There is no person in this world worth more than the God of the universe who knit you together, who created your soul, who placed you on this planet, and who is offering you perfect 
and complete forgiveness and a perfect and beautiful eternity in a kingdom with no sin, no pain, no sorrow, in perfect relationship with Him and with each other forever. No no sin and no person is worth more than God. Please give your life to Him today if you have not before. And if you have, then I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage you as my brothers and sisters in Christ to look to Joseph's life and to to read his life and to have it ingrained in your mind and in your heart so that it can give you courage. It can encourage you and give you what you need to endure the difficulties that we have to face in this life, but to keep in mind that God can do the impossible and then the difficulties that we must endure are only extremely, extremely temporary in light of eternity. This life will fly by and we are given a mission to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus while we're here. And so we must focus on that mission. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for your love. And Father, we thank you for for telling us our history. We thank you for telling us about the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Father, we thank you for telling us of of all that Joseph went through and how he responded through it all and how you were so good and how nothing could stop you from achieving your ultimate purposes in this world and nothing ever will. And so, Father, we take courage and we take confidence that you are good on your word and that you you will come through on every promise that you've made. And we look forward to that future when you will fulfill that promise for us and that you will... bring us into your heavenly beautiful kingdom father we thank you for preparing a place for us for a a place for us in your kingdom and offering that forgiveness to us and so father we pour out our lives to you and father we surrender our lives to you and father i pray that we will walk in freedom And we will know that no matter how hard this life gets, that this life is only for a short period of time and that you can do anything. And that, Father, we will trust you whether things go horribly and tragically wrong in our lives. We will trust you and know that all things will work out for the good of those who love you. And so, Father, we we love you and we thank you for your love for us. And Father, we ask that you forgive us when we fail you, but Father, that you would encourage us and lift us up and teach us and help us to walk through and navigate through this hard and difficult life. We love you, and we thank you for being right here in us, for always being here with us and never abandoning us. And so, Father, I pray that we will never, ever abandon you. We love you, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name, we pray. Amen. Thank you, church, for joining me this morning. And I pray that no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter where you're at in your relationship with God, that you will take your next step today. That if you have not placed your faith in Christ, that you'll do that right now. And that you'll let us know. Send us an email at yatesvillebaptistchurch at gmail.com so that we can follow up with you and help you to grow in your relationship with God and know what the next steps are. And I would encourage you, church, to continue to hold close to God no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter how, how difficult things are in your life right now. I, I ask you to not, 
to not turn against God and think that he's the reason that you are suffering, but that you turn to him and thank him for being right there with you, walking through this with you and knowing that he has got your future in his hands. I look forward to seeing you again in person, but until then, I'm praying for you, church. And I pray that you have an amazing, awesome week. God bless.